can we have the first slide up, please? Yeah. As uh, Steve said, we're in a series. This is the second of a five-part series on the church as family. Um, we all know there are many metaphors, pictures in the New Testament to help us understand what the church is like. It's a bride, it's a body, it's a, a temple, and so on. And um, these are, are really helpful pictures, but I think family is perhaps the best one that helps us appreciate what God has joined us to. Having saved us through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf, he did not leave us to go it alone, but placed us into a family, God's forever family. And um, this morning, um, we're, we're going to see that God has a very high view of the church, his family. <clears throat> Last week, David spoke on family and hospitality. Um, if you weren't here or you didn't hear um, the sermon last week, I just encourage you to go to the website and listen to that sermon. I found it so helpful. <clears throat> and um, one of the things that David said that the, is that the church should be a safe place for us. Do you remember the penguins? All right. I, I shall never forget the penguins, all right? and I shall know the application for it. Then he asked the question, what do you find difficult about church? Now, I don't know whether you considered that during the week, whether you discussed it in your growth groups, but what did you find difficult? I think in most cases, um, if we have a difficulty, it will be with people. People are the problem, aren't they? It's to do with relationship. So it may be with an individual or a group or even the whole church that we feel uncomfortable with we no longer feel at peace in the relationship. Now, unless it's in the case of the church and that it's preaching heresy, uh, we miss God's best if we walk away. Because learning to relate to one another is an essential part of our discipleship. If you look through the New Testament, you will find that most of the teaching of the apostles is about how we live together, how we relate together, with the assumption that we will have to work at forming and maintaining good relationships. They don't just happen naturally. And so words like forbearance, patience, forgiveness, compassion, long-suffering, and so on, are common. Can we have the first scripture up, please? <clears throat> 2 Timothy 2, 22-26. This is, our, if you like, the key scripture. Um, because Paul is addressing... Uh, Timothy's particular situation as a church leader in Ephesus and the particular problems that he's facing. And my goodness, when you read this, you think, oh, I'm so glad I'm in the church I'm in and not in this one. But anyway, um, what I, I'm not going to expound this in detail, but rather use it as a springboard to address relationships and behavior in the church in our context. But we'll read it. He says, so flee youthful passions, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Um, I've forgotten what youthful passions are. <laughs> Have you? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but on a more serious note, notice it's pursue faith, love, and peace. You can't leave these to chance. All right? You have to pursue them. And with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be, be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. My goodness, a church that was really being oppressed by the devil, no doubt. Anyway, how to disagree um, without falling out. Before we look at the how-to, we're going to remind ourselves of the who, who we are and who are the people um, with whom maybe we have some disagreement or difficulty. Because if we're to resolve, resolve the issue, whatever it is, and live at peace, we must settle in our minds who we are together. If we don't, we're not convinced about that, then we don't have the basis on which to you know, continue our relationship. This is the only true foundation for a good relationships in the church. So as we um, live together, as we work and serve together, our aim should be unity. This is to be of one heart and mind concerning the foundational truths of what we call the gospel. That is how sinful human beings like us can be made right with God. How we can be justified uh, in his sight. Um, and we kind of sum it up with, with this saying, which I think is fairly easy to remember, that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the essence of our unity. That's what is the basis for our unity. If you don't believe that, there is no unity. If you don't subscribe to that and say, this is what I put my trust in, there is no basis for unity. However, we are called to unity, not uniformity. And uh, this is seen when Jesus called men to be his disciples. We know they had very different backgrounds and personalities. And I believe this diversity was deliberate. Jesus wasn't just handed a bunch of guys and say, see what you make of those. He chose them deliberately. The Bible says he chose the ones that he wanted. So there was no mistakes. There's nothing given to chance. And it's still the wonderful feature of the church that it's multicolored, multiracial, multifaceted, multi-gifted, multi-ethnic, multi-everything. It's variety that God wanted for his church. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, talks about how God himself created our unity. And this is foundational, it's absolutely crucial. And he did it through the gospel. And in this case, how he could make Jews and Gentiles, who were arch enemies, very different in religion, history, culture, live together, in peace and harmony in the church. So let's read this, Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. For he, that's Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There's now no reason why Jews and Gentiles can't come together because he does it, did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's particularly in relation to the Jews. So the Jews no longer now look for their uh, justification before God. 
in trying to obey the law. It's now through faith in Jesus. It goes on, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, thus making peace. So he has the Jews and the Gentiles, and they come together and they are one new man. He was saying their primary identity is no longer that of Jew or Gentile, but this one new man, this believer in Jesus Christ. I'm not an Englishman who happens to be a Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be an Englishman. That gives me unity with every other person who professes Christ as saviour. That is my primary identity now. We are one new race. We are a new tribe, an absolute new tribe. If you cast your mind back to the Rwandan War um, that raged in Africa from 1990 to 1994, where people's tribal loyalties to, to Tutsi and Hutu, they were their tribes, became so acute, stirred up by warlords, that neighbours killed neighbours, going from house to house, village to village, in frenzied attacks, committing terrible atrocities. People who had lived together peacefully for years suddenly became enemies. Um, when the, at last the war was brought to an end, it was then that the healing of the communities had to begin. It's fine to say the war's over, but how do you unite a people who had experienced such hatred and bloodshed? And here's the answer. Now, I've got a picture in my mind. I can't remember whether it was a newspaper photograph or a television newsreel, but the picture is genuine. Lots and lots of Rwandans, a huge crowd of Rwandans, Rwandans, and they've got placards, and they've all got the same thing written on the placards, and it says... Not Tutu, Hutu, not, sorry, not Tutsi, not Hutu, but Jesus. That was on all their placards. And it was their identity now, their common identity as followers of Jesus that began to heal the community. As members, we are joined together to form a temple or a house. That's those metaphors again. And we're made of living stones. This temple is made of living stones, that Peter says, where the Lord is pleased to dwell. And we're not all the same, are we? Um, we have different personalities, different experiences, different gifts, different roles. And even in some matters that might, not be, uh, con might be considered secondary to the gospel, we may have a different understanding of the scriptures. Now, for our, as an example... People do differ on the fine detail of what happens at the end of the age when Jesus comes again. They all, everybody, every true Christian believes that Jesus is coming again. But the detail they may differ on, that's fine, as long as their unity is in the foundational truth of the gospel, how we are saved. As we share our lives, as we draw close to one another, like rough stones being fitted together some friction may occur. And in practice, um, some of the rough edges might need to be knocked off all right, in our, through our relationships with, with others. And as it did for the first disciples, living with Jesus, he taught them and trained them to live and serve, to <coughs> serve together, learning to accommodate each other's personality, not judging one another. And this was an essential part of their discipleship. 
And um, that's how it is with us. But I guess that left to ourselves, and for the sake of peace and comfort, we might gravitate to people who are like us. Similar age, background and interest. But that's not the church. It is God who decides who is in the church. And it will be diverse. I'm sure we all have views and opinions that are different from others that are not a serious cause of friction. And we're happy to, as we say, to agree to disagree, don't we? We might have a, a conversation with somebody. It might be, um, you know, quite an energetic conversation. But at the end of it, we say, well, I don't quite see it that way, but let's agree to disagree. And that's fine. But sadly, some disagreements lead to a breakdown in fellowship with one or other of the parties feeling hurt and for resentment and bitterness to breed. And ultimately, there is a parting of the ways and a refusal to have anything to do with one another. And it's not uncommon for those who have reached that stage to leave the church, maybe to join another. But um, even worse, they may reject church altogether because they find it so painful and walk into a spiritual wilderness. Now let me say straight away, I don't believe that's a problem here. I believe there are excellent relationships here. I think this is a wonderful, loving environment in which to grow uh, as a Christian. So it's really great. But um, we have to be on our guard. We can't take things for granted. Um, We have to be on our guard and not be passive. As Paul said to Timothy, pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace and not allow the devil a foothold. He wants a foothold. Devil and the way that the devil can attack Jesus is to attack his church. All right? And so we must be on our guard. So um, let's look at the next scripture. Um, the church is, is God's masterpiece, you know, because through the church he makes diverse people one. It is a miracle. The church is a miracle. And what do you do with a masterpiece? You put it on display. Don't you? You put a mas- if you've got a masterpiece, you don't hide it, you put it on display. And uh, Paul again in Ephesians, still talking about how God has brought Jew and Gentile together. Uh, we read in Ephesians 3, 10 to 11. So, he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Now, for the men here, uh, manifold is not a part of a car exhaust system. All right? Uh, that's where we most commonly use this term. What it means, it's like a diamond. It's multifaceted. It's glorious. Every time you look at another aspect of it, it just reflects such a glorious sight. So, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I assume that includes Satan as well. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is saying that before God created anything, he had in mind a diverse people brought together through faith in Jesus to be this wonderful body called the church. This is God's masterpiece, and this is what he had planned from the beginning. God is holding us up as an example. We are being watched. We are to display a quality of life and relationships that are an example, not just to the rulers 
and authorities in the heavenly places, but to a lost world. We are a shop window for the kingdom of God. If someone asks, what's the kingdom of God like? Well, I think maybe first we get the scriptures and we say, let's look in the, in, in the uh, Gospels and look at the life of Jesus. He was an embodiment of the kingdom of God. He would say to people, the kingdom of God is among you. Really refer him to himself. He was a, 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 the, the supreme example uh, of the kingdom of God. But we ought to be able to say, come and see. Come and see what the kingdom of God is like. Come among us. Come and experience what the kingdom of God is like. Now, there are many aspects for the kingdom of God, and unity is just one of them, but it's of prime importance. Now, we're not perfect. We all know that we're a work in progress, but God is clearly at work in our relationships, and people should be able to detect that. We have to demonstrate that the gospel works. There's no point in preaching the gospel if we can't demonstrate that it actually works. And the way we live together will either confirm the gospel or undermine it. Because not only does the gospel bring us into a unique fellowship with God, but also a unique relationship with others, other believers. We cannot truly have one without the other. I, I, I think I can think of times when people have said, well, I've got a bit of a problem with the church at the moment and I'm, you know, I'm at odds with so-and-so, but my relationship with God is great. I'm having a wonderful, quiet time. Just listen to what uh, John says. 1 John 4, 20 to 21. He couldn't have put it more starkly. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, you might protest and say, oh, well, I don't hate anybody. You know, no, that's fine. I don't hate anybody. But put it on the positive, um, the, the exhortation is to love. And I believe this is love from the heart. If we fail to love our brother or sister from the heart, it seriously brings into question our claim that we love God. Uh, God help us to recognise that the person that we're at odds with, who may have hurt us, is someone accepted and loved by God. Someone for whom Christ died. A fellow heir in the grace of God. I like that phrase, a fellow heir in the grace of God. And uh, that's just a, a, a wonderful picture of uh, God brings us into this wonderful uh, relationship. And... Um, we cannot truly have one without the other, as we say. And of course, the person that we're dealing with is a member of our family, somebody who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Sadly, in many respects, our society is broken. With, for many people, family is not the loving, secure place it should be. Family breakdown is rife. Members estranged from one another. Members hating one another. Whether we come from a good, bad, or indifferent family, when we are saved, we come into God's family. Through faith in Jesus, we are brought into the loving relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God was love before he had human beings to love, because love is the thing that is uh, uh, evident in the Trinity, Father, Son, and we have been drawn into that relationship. 
the relationship of, the, of the, the, the Trinity. We are God's forever family. We are to be like our Father, who is loving and forgiving and generous and long-suffering. Now, there is something of utmost importance at stake here, which we haven't mentioned yet, which I haven't mentioned yet. Let's look at Romans 15, 5 to 7. See if you can see what it is of utmost importance, but we haven't mentioned yet. May the God of endurance and encouragement, the NIV said, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, let's receive one another, accept one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So you see what it is? It's the glory of God. All right? This is the, 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 the thing which is of utmost importance. We were created for the glory of God. We were saved for the glory of God. We are here in the church for the glory of God. Jesus died so that God would be glorified for his grace towards us. That's why the cross can be the glory of God, because it displays the grace of God. And God will be praised throughout eternity for his grace. Not just individually, but together we are for the glory of God. Our unity is for the glory of God. So just as in, uh, Christ has welcomed and accepted us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, while there was nothing that was attractive or lovely about us, we are to welcome and accept one another. Uh, and I would underline and say unconditionally. Unconditionally. Why? Because that is for the glory of God. God so wanted us to share his heaven, that he found a way not to let our sin, our faults, our rebellion, our indifference get in the way of lavishing his love and grace upon us. He let the just punishment for our sin fall on his son. So the debt was paid. There is now no barrier. God is free to lavish his love upon us. And Jesus became the living way we can enjoy heaven free from guilt and sin. This was only achieved because God did not let the way we treat him affect the way he treated us and continues to treat us. And that's a, such an important principle. And this is to be our example. We are to be like our father. Bethel Church in Reading, California has built this principle into their vision and values. And they call it a culture of honour. There are a lot of ways they express this, but it's summed up in this. If we can have a next slide, please. I will not let the way you treat me affect the way I treat you. Okay? I will not let the way you treat me affect the way I treat you. In other words, however people treat us, we're not to retaliate either with words or actions, and we don't give up on people and throw in the towel and walk away. How much Jesus could have done that with his disciples. But even when betrayed and denied, he continued to love them and die for them. 
he did not allow the way they treated him to affect the way he treated them. If I have a disagreement with someone in the church and the arguments are strongly held, my aim should be to honour that person over and above winning the argument. Don't we love winning an argument? Eh? It's just great satisfaction. We can be like a dog with a bone, can't we? Won't let go. But because it feels good, it feeds our ego who win an argument. But our aim should be to honour that person, the image of Christ in that person, the fact that Jesus has died for that person. And so, so let's now turn to the how-to. How to disagree without falling out. Now, if we're sure in our, that our heart is right towards other members of the body of Christ, and that's something we can think about now, even when we're not, we've not got an issue with somebody that we're trying to deal with. We can think, what is my heart like towards the other members of, of the body of Christ? And be sure that we've accepted them, that we've received them, welcomed them into our lives. Then what practically can we do to help avoid undue friction? Well, here are some suggestions. All right, can we have a next slide, please? The first one is speak early. If we have a difficulty with someone or sense they may have a difficulty with us, it is good to talk early because the issue becomes entrenched and perhaps others are drawn into it if we just leave it. Right? We need to talk early. We should do this with gentleness and humility. Don't wait for the other person to speak. Take the initiative, even if we think we are right. It's so easy to say, well... They're the one at fault, let them come to me. I'm, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for them to come to me. No, be prepared to take the initiative. Now, if we want to raise an issue with someone where we think they are at fault, um, here is the golden rule, uh, which I wish I had followed years ago. Don't write a critical letter or send a critical text. Text is so easy, you know, we can we can respond and retaliate so easily because misunderstandings go uncorrected and the person can read it over and over again. Each time they read your letter or your text, they receive the criticism again. It's far better to talk it through face-to-face -face where they can reply to your point straight away and any misunderstanding can be corrected. I can think of two letters I wrote and in essence, what I wrote was pretty well on the ball. It was correct. But I should never have written letters. I should have spoken to the person or persons face to face. I really regret having sent those letters. If we discover we are at fault, even if only partially, and the other person has been hurt by either our words or actions, don't just say sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry because we haven't actually taken responsibility in that. We might just be saying, I'm sorry we are in this mess, rather than saying something to the person. It's far better that we say, please forgive me for whatever it is. Please forgive me for ignoring you. Please forgive me for those harsh words I said on the spur of the moment. Please forgive me, because that takes responsibility. And so whatever it is, even if we think we're only partially to blame. If we are partially to blame, ask for forgiveness for that part 
that we're responsible for. Asking for forgiveness can diffuse the situation and may encourage the other person to acknowledge their part in the difficulty. So don't let it fester and cause a difficulty to become a crisis. I don't know if you've had the situation where you've gone to somebody and apologised, maybe said, please forgive me, and they said, oh, no, no, it wasn't you, it was me. You know, I don't know if you've experienced that, but that can often happen. So asking for forgiveness can definitely diffuse the situation. So next one, give the benefit of the doubt. Uh, for example, if someone you, that you know well, you've been in good relationship with, and they fail to speak to you one Sunday. They walk right past you, appearing to ignore you. Or they fail to telephone when you, they promise to do so. Or anything else you may be expecting. Don't jump to the conclusion uh, that um, they're mad at you or they've gone off you. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Because in most cases, most likely, uh, that something has distracted them and they will be most upset to know that uh, they have offended you. I mean, maybe we've all experienced a situation we've, we're, uh, we want some information urgently, so we text somebody who's got that information, we don't hear anything. So we text again, and we don't hear anything. In fact, my goodness, what's up with them? <laughs> what? They, they must know I need this information. And of course, then you find later that their phone has broken. Right? They, they didn't intentionally not answer. So give people the benefit of the doubt. The next one, communication. Um, this is particularly important for leaders, um, but um, lack of communication can breed confusion and suspicion, can't it? And, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter what we're doing, whether um, we're involved in, in planning something or executing something in the life of the church, um, we need to know who needs to know. It's important to think does anybody need to know about this? And I think this is particularly true if you're in a committee or something like that and you've been making decisions that are going to affect the church. At the end of it, stop and say, is there anybody who needs to know? Right? It's just as a little discipline. Consultation, that's somewhat similar to the first. I don't know about you, but I find it easy if I'm responsible for a project to steam ahead and think, I don't want to be bothered with other people. I just I know what I'm doing. I'm going to get on with it, you know. And you know, in situations like that, um, I can fail to consult with people who need to make a contribution to whatever it is I'm doing. So it's so important that we can cons we consult where necessary with people, and don't find it irksome. You know, because sometimes we think, well, it's much quicker if I get on and just do it myself, you know, and not bother with other people, right? But yet, as you can see, um, the project will be the poorer for it if we don't um, consult with people. So the last point, don't easily take offence. Don't easily take offence. We should, of course, be careful not to give offence, but I think it's almost as wrong to take offence, because when we take offence, it's our old self rising up. You know, it's our old ego. We thought was dead. Our pride is hurt. You know, our ego is dented. And we may think our rights have been ignored or violated. 
But you know, as Christians, in the church, we only have one right. We don't have a whole bunch of rights. We have one right, and that is to love one another. That is our right, to love one another. You know, Jesus did not cling to his rights as God, did he? We read about that in Philippians 2. And even though he was God, even though he was the creator of the world with every right you could think of, and he did not stand on his rights, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And that is our example. We don't stand on our rights. I've been taken by surprise sometimes how easily I'm irritated and uneasy when something in my life is threatened, um, however slightly. I think, oh, what's, what's, why, am I, why am I upset about this? It's at such times that we, I, need to come before the Lord and consciously recognize that I have a new nature that God has given me and that I have the Holy Spirit. So a godly response to things that would normally offend me are possible. It's now possible. It's not inevitable, but it's now possible that we can uh, not be offended by things that other people do. Paul says our response should be like putting on a new garment. It's like we're putting on Christ, and we can do that consciously. Lord, I'm feeling a bit miffed about all this. Put on Christ. And he says in Colossians, this is Colossians 3, 12 to 15, I'm going to close with this. I think it's a lovely passage. Put on then as God's chosen ones. We remind ourselves that we and others in the body of Christ are chosen. God chose us. And the Bible says before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ. That we're holy, we're set apart for God and we're beloved. You know, we are loved more than we can possibly imagine. God loved us so much that he was willing to, to sacrifice his son on our behalf. So he says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. You know, I mentioned earlier about us being a shop window. And we're not perfect, we're a work in progress. But if people can see how we forgive, you know, when we've been hurt, that, it, that is a demonstration of the gospel. We are like our Father who forgives. So it, it, that we don't have to be perfect to be a good shop window. We have to, they, people have to see that the gospel works. So forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So also you must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you didn't leave us alone, to go it alone. Lord, you have given us your family, the church, your body that will one day be the wonderful bride for Jesus, his eternal companion. Father God, thank you for the people that make up this church. Thank you for what they mean to each one of us. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us the wherewithal uh, to make relationships sweet and to honour you and to give you glory. 
Lord, please help us. Continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray, that you may be glorified and glorified and glorified in this church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pete's